0: I'll just go ahead and start um, uh, introducing uh, the this. Let me just introduce this series. So welcome to the Torch of Progress. This is the speaker series for Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Uh, Progress Studies for Young Scholars is an online summer program in the history of technology uh, aimed at high school students a- and up and uh, we just before we dive in today, I want to let you know, we do have events going on every week and we've got some great, uh, speakers coming up. Uh, next week, we are going to have, uh, Joel Mokir, uh, author of a number of books, including most recently a culture of growth. Uh, that will be next Wednesday, July 8th. Um, after that, we've got, uh, Noor Siddiqui, a biotech uh, founder of a company called orchid bioscience, uh, and also a teal fellow that will be Wednesday, July 15th. Um, and after her, Uh, Anton Howes uh, will be joining us to talk about his new book, Arts and Minds, A History of the Royal Society for Arts. Uh, And that will be on Wednesday, July 22nd. All of those events are at 10 a.m. Pacific time.
1: I served served on Anton's Ph.D. examination uh, in London, and Joe Mokir is one of my oldest, oldest friends.
0: Wonderful. They're both, they're both uh, well, I, I know Anton a little bit personally, and he's a wonderful person, and I've, I've been fascinated by Mokir's books, so yeah. looking forward to that one as well. Um, I am your host, Jason Crawford. I write The Roots of Progress, where I write about the history of, te- uh, of technology and the philosophy of progress. Um, I'm also the creator of this course, Progress Studies for Young Scholars. Um, and uh, our guest today, our speaker, is uh, Professor Deirdre Nansen-McCluskey, um, she is a, uh, a professor emerita at University of Illinois at Chicago, has written more books and articles than I could possibly, uh, recount for you. Um, including, I would say most famously, uh, the, uh, a series of books known as the bourgeois era. Um, and Siri thinks that I'm talking to her. No, a series of books known as the bourgeois era. <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> <laughs> um... Thank you so much uh, for joining us today.
1: Yes, I'm glad to be here. As I said before, this is from the famous Grand Canyon of South Central Illinois. You may not know that there's a Grand Canyon there, but here it is.
0: (laughs) All right. Um, So we'll dive in. I've got some questions to start us off, and then we will uh, take some questions from the audience for the last uh, 20 minutes or so. 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so uh, our students have already learned about the great enrichment, uh, as, as you call it. And I love that term. Uh, yeah. Probably most people here are familiar with the, the dramatic rise in living standards of the last couple hundred years. Um, but can you just summarize for the, for the audience your theory of these uh, bourgeois ideals that, uh, that, that led to it?
1: Well, the first thing to understand and the most important uh, uh, takeaway is how big the great enrichment is. It's something like 3,000% increase in national income, not a doubling, I mean, national income per head, see, per person in real terms, not a doubling, which is 100%, or even a, a, a tripling, which is 200%, but a factor of 30. Now, that's... that's <laughs> to put it mildly, that's transformative. And it's happening in more and more uh, countries. It's happening now at a rate which will eventually achieve it in China and India, 40% of the world's population. And the question is why? Now, the way economists usually approach this and economic historians is to talk about capital accumulation. Or if they're on the left politically, they talk about um uh, exploitation, slavery and imperialism. None of those work. What works, they, and, and I, they don't work at all. <laughs> Accumulation just by itself, you pile brick on brick or bachelor's degree on bachelor's degree, and you reach very quickly, if there's no innovation going on, diminishing returns. Suppose instead of having one automobile you had 20 automobiles. (laughs) Would that make you 20 times better off? No, it wouldn't. You'd just have all these cars in your front yard. And exploitation doesn't work either. You can steal from people if you want, but if you steal from poor people, as imperialism is, or as as slavery is, you you, you don't get very much. If you were to steal from the homeless people in your neighborhood, you wouldn't earn much. If you're gonna steal, steal from France. So uh, accumulation and stealing exploitation don't work. So what does work? What does work and did work is a change in the attitude towards the middle class and towards what the middle class does in the way of manufacturing and trading and uh, Above all, invention. Before the 18th century, innovation was a bad word in English and French and other languages. Because no, you don't want to innovate. That might oh disturb the hierarchy that's characteristic of old agricultural societies, where the aristocrats, are the king, and are on, priests are on top, and, and 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 the milkmaid is at the bottom. But in the 18th century, people like Voltaire and the blessed Adam Smith and Mary Wollstonecraft w- 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 and Tom Paine started saying, wait a minute, we can have a society in which there are no slaves, in which everyone's free. We can, as Tom Paine said, we can make the world anew by abolishing this hierarchy of higher and lower. Now, we haven't ever achieved that, as you see in the um, right now in the Black Lives Matter uh, problem agitation. I mean, it's completely justified in my view. But we improved it a lot. More and more people were allowed, as the English say, to have a go, to try out stuff. And the result was an astounding increase in invention, especially after around 1800. It got more and more crazy. More and more things were invented, Uh, electric lights and automobiles and airplanes and and institutional changes like containerization in in, in shipping. And the result was this extraordinary increase. Of course, if the extraordinary increase had gone only to the rich, I would be joining my friends on the left Uh, on the picket line, overthrow this stuff, this is terrible. But that's not true, that's not what happened. The poor were the chief beneficiaries. The poor are your ancestors and mine. Mine were unspeakably poor Irish and Norwegian peasants, yours were whatever they were. But in 1800, the average person on the planet was earning in modern prices two or three dollars a day. Imagine trying to get along in San Francisco, or York, or London, or wherever, on two or three dollars a day. Now, in these places, it's over a hundred dollars a day. So, it was caused in in brief, in one sentence, the great enrichment was caused by making people free. And that, you know, (laughs) there's nothing novel, or new, or... McCluskey's so clever as she thought this up and all the economy, other economists are wrong. It's actually the theory that these 18th century liberals, Voltaire and Smith and so forth, that's what they thought. They didn't realize it would have such an enormous payoff, but they, were, they thought this would be a much better society and it certainly is.
0: Yeah. So you said making people free. Now, in your book, uh, Bourgeois Dignity, you say it's, it wasn't property rights, not even really patents. It wasn't institutions like being able to create corporations. So what type of freedom was it? Can you elaborate or, or make it that was, more specific?
1: It was the freedom to do what you want, maybe start a corporation if you want, or uh, not have a patent. See, the, the problem with patents is that they're government-sponsored monopolies. It should... Worry people that patents and copyrights were invented by by, by the Venetians five um, centuries ago. And the Venetians were famous for enforcing monopolies on their tricks in blowing glass or whatever, or their trade to the Eastern Mediterranean. So a patent is not where it's at. Whereas, as by the way, you're, you're, ask your um, guest next week, Joe McKeer, about patents, and he'll tell you, no, patents weren't it. And So you're free up to the point of someone else's nose to, um, uh, to, to try out things. Now that means you have to have comprehensive freedom of employment. You have to allow people into occupations. It's quite shocking how in the United States in the last 50 years, occupational licensing has increased. In 1950, 5% of occupations involved a state license. Now it's 30%. And that's a real obstacle to poor people earning a li- living by braiding hair or doing interior decoration. So it, it turns out that uh, not having the right to exploit other people as, as the hierarchy, the agricultural hierarchy did, not having slaves, I think that, that's the simplest way to put it. Another way to put it is this liberalism I talk about, it, not the way Americans talk about it these days, but the way other people do, other people in the world do liberalism is the theory that people should be allowed to be adults. That they're not, that adult people are not children. To be either, I don't know, um, uh, helped out with quotation marks around it, but supervised, or uh, dominated, but supervised. And that's the left and the right's view. Of, of, of poor people, but allowed to um, not to do what they want. That's like the people who say, oh, I don't have to wear a mask for COVID-19 because I'm a free person. I can do what I want. No, <laughs> you can't go around punching people in the nose or infecting people in the nose. Uh, but But within a very broad area, what was novel is this freedom from guilds, from government-sponsored monopolies of various kinds, from, uh, from coercion by your lord. It was commonplace in the 1700s and before.
0: How were the guilds dissolved?
1: The guilds were dissolved, uh, they were weak in Holland and England, which is quite interesting uh, because it's in Holland and England that the modern world began. But they were strong in France and Germany and Italy, and they were abolished actually in those countries by the French Revolution, most particularly by, by, by Napoleon's army, armies. When they came into Germany or Italy, the first thing they did was abolish all such privileges. Well. So now we've reformed the guilds and after all, doctors, for example, in the United States, are very heavily protected by the government. Hmm. You, as a for, you you can't practice medicine in the United States unless you've got a you know American medical degree and the and the and you've served your internship and blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. occupational
0: occupational uh, licensing uh, as a modern guild system.
1: Occupational licensure is modern guild.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well. Now, you mentioned uh, Holland. So it, it yeah. seems that they were ahead of uh, Britain in, in some way in this, in this great enrichment, and then somehow they kind of lost it? Yeah. or yeah. So what, yeah. what happened there? How did that pass from yeah. Holland to England? It,
1: it happened the way it's happening here in the modern world. Um, the monopolies, the guilds <laughs> reasserted their, their powers, not so much guilds in, in the Dutch case, but the regents, so-called, the uh, in Dutch, um, wanted nice little tight little monopolies, and so they enforced it in the 18th century, whereas in the 16th and 17th century, what we now call Holland or or the Dutch, were very free market, um, and were able to uh, um, uh, do extremely well, (laughs) while fighting with one hand a revolt against Spain against the king of Spain, they were prospering and inventing, inventing in many things. They invented the microscope, the telescope, the clock, the the uh, the pendulum clock, and improved science and blah 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 in the 17th century. But then they kind of lost their their mojo in the 18th, and it was countries like what became the United States and England and Scotland who took over the lead. Yet still by 1800, the two richest countries in the world per capita were Holland and and Britain. Yeah. Um,
0: So you make this case that bourgeois liberty and dignity are necessary for enrichment.
1: Do yeah. well, you just think they necessary. are? No, no, it's, it's, it's more. They're not just necessary. There are an infinite number of things that are necessary for economic growth or anything else. The existence of the universe is necessary. The existence of li- liquid water at normal temperatures is necessary. Rule of law is necessary. Uh, investment market is necessary. They're all necessary. But what I'm looking for, and what I think any scientist of this, these matters should be looking for, is sufficiency. It is something that acts as the spring in the mechanical clock of the modern world. The gears are necessary. Yeah, it's nice, good. You have to have them. I'm not against them. But they're commonplace. They happened essentially at all times and in places for millennia yet didn't result in the great enrichment until the 18th and 19th century. What was the secret sauce? What was the sufficiency? And the sufficiency was liberty.
0: Um, And now what about the relationship of science? It seems that science, technology, they were were needed for these inventions. There was a whole scientific revolution.
1: Well, Ask Joel about that next week.
0: (laughs) I will. He'll tell you all about it. He and I have
1: been, he and I have a lot in common. We agree on a great many things. We form with a few other people, a very small ideational school of economic history. Where we, Joel says, and I say, and a few others say, ideas are where the modern world came from. Not investment, not slavery, but ideas. And... Joel thinks that the, the, the idea of science was crucial. And I, good Lord knows I'm not against science. But what we don't agree on is the timing. Joel thinks that it matters very early. He says, oh, if they didn't know the weight of air, they couldn't have had an atmospheric uh, steam engine. Well, I don't know. People were fooling around with what amounted to atmospheric uh, uh, steam engines in the ancient world. So, wait a second, I don't know if you need this theory. But anyway, I, he, what I, what he, I would agree with him that after around 1900, science really starts to matter. Artificial fertilizers, for example, by, um, uh, for example, are terribly important. The Green Revolution, to take another similar case, uh, made India into a net grain exporter. Um, in really very few years, in about about 10 years. So science matters a lot. We we couldn't have what we're on right now without science, I agree. But before that, it's mainly technology. And the problem is that people put it all into one word and they say it fast, they say, science and technology. (laughs) So that you get the idea that science is really what it is Technology is just what these silly bourgeoisie do and making it pay off. And that's not right. Um, Everything around you, look look around your house, (coughs) pardon me, is designed. There's a designer behind every manufactured item in your house. (coughs) And it's designed for beauty and for profit and everything you see around you is. And that has very little to do with science on the whole. So science is nice, I'm not an anti-science person. I regard myself as a scientist. (coughs) But it's the the craftsperson, the engineer applying the science. This is why I'm against this uh, passion for STEM fields science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So was it was it just a
0: coincidence that the scientific revolution and no. this sort of bourgeois revaluation happened in the same place and era? It's,
1: it's not. <coughs> I've, I've sort of refined the idea of the bourgeois revaluation to focus on the liberalism. And without a free society in which to exercise it, science would not have worked. It, um, you know, you can, you can make the claim that, oh, well, you can centralize science. That was Francis Bacon's idea. And it's a, it's a lousy idea. It does not ever work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, on the contrary, science with uh, what Carl um, Polanyi's smarter brother, Michael Polanyi, said, science works best in a, in a liberal society. Even inside science itself, things work best if you don't have hierarchies and coercion. Mayanists, of all people, were prevented for 30 years from deciphering glyphs on Mayan monuments, because the chief Mayanist in the world was a professor at Harvard, who didn't believe they constituted any kind of of writing. He thought they were just ornaments. And when that kind of hierarchy is operating in science, science stops. In that context... In other words, I'm saying, uh liberalism, a free society, which resulted in in ingenuity, also results in scientific ingenuity. Galileo was stopped by hierarchy.
0: Yeah, in, in that context, what do you think of the way that it seems that the way we fund science today, we have begun centralizing it uh, mm-hmm. under in, in you know, I mean, the NIH provides most funding for health yeah. science today. It's forty billion dollars. Um, it, it seems to me there's some sort of a centralizing effect there. What absolutely thoughts we, on that?
1: We we've been doing that ever since the war. And it's because of our wonderful success with the uh, Manhattan Project. People are always going back to the Manhattan Project to justify centralization. But look what's happening on the engineering side to spaceflight. Spaceflight is becoming commercial. And you say, oh, well, that took uh, NASA. NASA had to come first or we wouldn't have gotten spaceflight. Well, I don't think that's true. I think Once we realized that um, uh, geo-stable position satellites could uh, do all the things they do, commerce would have done it. And in any case, um, uh, of course, the the advantage in the United States, actually, I must say, I've, I've taught in other academic systems, such as Holland and Sweden, and our, our system has the advantage that there are all these crazy variety of American colleges and universities and independent scholars by the ton and, and institutes and this, that, and the other thing, all sort of competing with each other. And that makes for a healthier scientific environment, again, following Michael Bologna, than does the, the Bureau model, which is what the Europeans like. They want CERN to be where you do research and they want up and down. um, In in Holland, every academic has virtually a number stamped on her head um, of her uh, ranking in her field.
0: Moving on a little bit. What is is the relationship of the bourgeois ideals that you identify to uh, the Enlightenment?
1: It's not the bourgeois ideals. People are always getting this wrong. Even Joel gets it wrong from time to time. And it's just crazy because I keep saying, it's not that the bourgeoisie changed in behavior. It's not that they suddenly got virtuous or anyway, somehow changed. Now that's Max Weber. That's a psychological change that he claimed in 1905, which is false. It's been shown every which way to be false. The theology's wrong, the economic history's wrong, the economics is crazy, everything's wrong about it. So that's not it. It's not that suddenly people got clever. It's that the rest of the society stopped hating them. In Shakespeare, who was the son of a glover bourgeois, lower bourgeois craftsman, and was himself bourgeois, uh, ran theaters, and so he earned his income, was writing, not writing his plays, someone else could do that maybe, but but by running the theaters, um, has no bourgeois hero in the whole of his plays. You say, oh, well, The Merchant of Venice. Uh-uh. Antonio in The Merchant of Venice is a fool for love, love for, for, for the aristocrat, love for the aristocrat, Bassanio. Um, and Shylock is certainly not an admired figure. So n- nowhere else in Shakespeare is any middle class person, any inventor any commercial person elevated. They're all liars and thieves. Um, So (laughs) that changes. As I show in, especially in my third volume, um, Bourgeois Equality, I have a lot of evidence about this change in attitude towards the middle class, towards inventors and, and what they called in, uh, in Britain, they call them projectors. A perfect example of this is our own Benjamin Franklin, who wants to be a gentleman all his life. He's the son of a candle maker. He's an uh, apprentice pr- printer. And this is, this is working class stuff. Yet through enterprise, through invention, he raises himself up and that's what you get from the change in attitude. Franklin himself is part of the change in attitude. His example is part of the change in attitude. Most of the people who made the constitution were thought of themselves as kind of aristocrats. Um,
0: uh, and, so this, and so this shift in, in uh, these attitudes is this? Does this have any relation to the broader phenomenon, of the Enlightenment? Well, how would you, how would you yeah, this
1: sort of? I mean, the the, the Enlightenment would have re, would have not resulted to, to for to to anything. It wouldn't have mattered very much if it had continued to be the province of aristocrats. That's what it was. It was the soirees in French aristocratic households were the locus of the French environment uh, in in Enlightenment. Now there were exceptions to this, bail and so forth, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the bulk of what was going on in the Enlightenment in the 18th century. Now in Scotland it wasn't the same, so if I was to talk about the Enlightenment, I would talk not about the Rational Enlightenment of France, where reason is the god, but the practical and the liberal Enlightenment in Scotland. Adam Smith, uh, the blessed Adam Smith, I always cross myself, was an egalitarian, but he was a, he was an egalitarian of permission, not as Rousseau claimed to be, although he didn't, he wasn't actually, but he claimed to be an egalitarian of outcome. And those two, either giving people permission to have a go, on the one hand, that's Scottish, or giving people the same income in the end, end-state egalitarianism, which is Rousseau, those are the two roots of the two great competing uh, 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 politics of Europe. Liberalism on the one hand, socialism on the other. Yeah.
0: Are there any uh, risks or downsides to the bourgeois virtues? What should we be careful to compliment them with, if anything.
1: And you're talking about the bourgeois virtues as though that was my point. Now, I understand. I don't want to get mad at you, but understand that the first book was mistitled. (laughs) I called it the bourgeois virtues, ethics for an age of commerce. Now, what I did in the book was to point out that commercial virtues are just commercial versions of the seven Traditional virtues in the West can find parallels in, in South Asia and, and, and Confucian thought and so forth. It's not that people got better, it's not that they got virtues they didn't have before. The middle class, the merchants, and so on have always had the virtue of prudence balanced with the virtues of, of love and justice, and hope and faith and courage. Uh, and temperance—that—that uh, that was the theme of the book that they've always had. it. So, having discovered that, so to speak, I then realized that the question was why. The question was the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, and for that, I realized slowly. It came in the second book called Bourgeois Dignity, and then especially in the third called Bourgeois Equality. I—I I realized that there had been a radical change in some countries and not in others, in England, in Scot- especially in Scotland and, and in the North American colonies of England, um, in the attitude towards the commercial versions of the virtues. So it's not that the virtues flourished. It's not that the people of the modern country club are better as Donald Trump thinks they are. Than, than, than the people who don't belong to a country club. Those poor losers, Don, Donald would say. No. On the contrary, the key idea is equality. As the great um, um, African American poet of the um, 1930s, whose name is escaping me, said, Oh, let America be America again. And, the 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 na- nation that has not yet been or the the land that has not yet been the land where every man is free and every every every, every woman dear too that's the basic idea that no slaves no hierarchies you can't boss me around unless I want you to unless i make a deal with you. It's, it's the exercise of violence, physical violence, that makes for these hierarchies. And that's what the liberals, such as Walt Whitman, for example, were against. And Henry David Thoreau, who by the way, ran for a while his father's his father's pencil factory and improved it to the point where Thoreau and Son made the best pencils in America. Wow, <laughs> did not know that. No, <laughs> well, people thinking he was a socialist, he wasn't at all, he was a-, he was a So uh,
0: what does your uh, theory imply for policy or culture today? What should we do to continue to drive progress and enrichment?
1: Nothing, briefly. <laughs> Elaborate.
0: <laughs> My former... not surely, you're not saying it's just going to happen on its own.
1: Yeah, it is going to happen on its own if the, if the government doesn't adopt industrial policy, doesn't adopt uh, protection in international trade, such as the protection of American drug manufacturers so that we can't buy drugs from Canada. This is crazy. That's what the government specializes in. Special deals for this interest or that. No, leave people alone. um, Enforce the laws, although most of them are enforced uh, uh, privately anyway. And uh, go to it. It's that element. It's the the aspect or the, uh, that's not the exact word. That's the, the portion of of modern politics and sociology since the 18th century. It's that free portion that's done most of the work. So, I mean, honestly, get rid of uh, uh, eminent domain, for example, which is an out, outrageous um, intrusion on freedom. Get, get rid of, uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, when you seize someone's house because there are drugs in it.
0: So the uh, uh, civil f- asset yeah, forfeiture.
1: C- yeah. civil asset forfeiture. Get r- rid of all the rules on um, occupational l- l- licenses. Look, we economists at least are consistent about this. There is no government license you need to claim that you're an economist. One of the current advisors to the, to the uh, president, Larry, what's his name, is not an economist, yet he's advising uh, Trump on, on economics. Embarrassingly, one of his others, Peter Navarro, like me, has a PhD in economics from Harvard. How this guy got it, I have no idea. And I'm organizing a group of Harvard PhDs in economics to turn in their PhDs because uh, Peter N- 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 Navarro has one. So get rid of all the, uh, the protections which end up hurting the poor and women and black people. After all, it's the government that enforced uh, 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 Jim Crow. It's the government that enforced um, redlining for mortgages. This was, these were government programs, so to speak.
0: And what about at the level of of culture? Do we need to, have we lost some of that respect for business and inventors and, and do we need to bring that back?
1: We need to bring that back. Now look, I'm not saying we should worship Steve Jobs. The guy was a terrible jerk. Um, but on the other hand, he knew how to make things that people wanted to buy. Who's that? Is that Steve? Is that, uh, that no? That's his. Uh, that's Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah. That's Steve Jobs and all the other. There he is. There he is in the corner. Um, and and but I, but but we and more than in most other certainly much more than in Europe. As I said, I've lived and taught in Britain, Holland, and Sweden, and there. <laughs> especially in Sweden, of course, but also in Holland. There's much less respect for innovators, for people who risk everything um, for their ideas than there is in the United States. So we we have an advantage there, but we keep falling back into wanting to protect the poor by hurting them. And this is commonplace. I mean, the... (laughs) the, um, the indignation over Uber, for example. Uber breaks down the, the taxi monopoly. And it's good for poor people because Uber drivers will go into the south side or west side of Chicago to get fares, whereas the standard cab drivers will not. Uh, and yet the left, my friends on the left, and I, I was once a Marxist myself, my friends on the left will say, oh, Uber is terrible. It's a, I don't know what they think. It's a monopoly, or or I don't know. They don't understand entry. That's one of their basic problems. And if if the government doesn't prevent entry, people can have a go.
0: You mentioned you were once a Marxist. You've had quite a personal sort of intellectual journey. What what are some of the biggest things you've changed your mind about, and, and why?
1: Well, a lot of things. I mean, I still want to help the poor. That's how I became a, I was a Potkinite anarchist for a while when I was about fifteen. Then I was a kind of Joan Baez socialist for a couple of years. I played the guitar and sang labor songs. I know more labor songs than all of my left wing colleagues. Uh, we had a we started a faculty union at, at the University of Illinois Chicago, and um, the. Uh, uh, and we had, at one time, we had a, had, had a picket line, and I was teaching my left-wing friends the songs of, of the labor movement. So I was that for a while, then I started studying economics at Harvard, and all that all was, Harvard College, all that was on offer was Keynesianism, so I became a Keynesian, and I became a kind of social engineer. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. That was my attitude. And then I started to study economic history and gradually realized that economics could be used to understand human, um, uh, spo- as I w- much later learned to call them spontaneous orders. And that, and my first job was for, uh, at the University of Chicago. I had tenure there. And so I, I gradually became a Chicago School economist. And then I became a then I started studying the humanities in the 1980s quite seriously and became a professor of English at UIC eventually. I'm a proud graduate of the Summer School of Criticism and Theory. And so I started to see economics in a broader way. And I got interested in Austrian economics because of some personal contacts with Austrians. And then I blah. blah, blah. So <laughs> I've been everything. I got I, I I, I've been everything except a conservative. I'm often accused of being a conservative, but it's ridiculous. I'm a radical. And I I want the society to change, and I want it to change in the direction of uh, of freedom.
0: Yeah. So now I call it
1: humanomics. In fact, I was working this morning on a, on a book. I've actually got two books, which the University of Chicago is going to publish next year, um, on against new institutionalism and other behaviorist theories that economists have and in favor of what I call humanomics, economics with the humans left in.
0: Okay. um, We will go to audience questions in just a minute. So um, anybody who's got a question, if you are in the class, you can ask it in our uh, private Slack. Look in the announcements channel for the thread. We prioritize questions from our students in the course. Um, Everybody else, go ahead and put your question in the Slack chat um, and and, and we'll try to get to as many as we can.
1: Um, I'll try to be briefer than I have. I was (laughs) trying to exposit the whole, I've written about By now, I've written about, I don't know, how many books on this subject. I've written quite a few books on this subject. (laughs) Half a dozen, one way or another, books like this on these matters.
0: Yes, and they're not short books. No,
1: well, once I knew how to write short books, and then they invented word processing. (laughs) Now I can't control myself. I write 500 pages. I mean, Jesus, shut up, dear girl.
0: (laughs) All right, so last question before we go uh, to, some, to some student and audience questions. Um, what advice, and this is especially for our high schoolers um, in the yeah. audience, what advice that's commonly given to teenagers do you think is actually wrong? And, and what would you replace it
1: with? Well, that's a very interesting question. I've never thought of it. That's commonly wrong. Well, let's see now. That's, that's really quite a puzzling and interesting question. I mean, I, I got a lot of wrong advice in my time. Uh, for example, let's help the poor by governing them. That's what's often said. We, we, we can't just give them money. Um, or, or still better, give them permission to become doctors if they want to become lawyers. Abraham Lincoln never went to law school. And yet I understand he was a pretty good lawyer. So, uh, I don't know. Um, It's a puzzling question you're asking, right?
0: On a personal level, is there anything you remember that somebody, you know, people told you advice that you shouldn't have taken or glad you didn't take?
1: Well, there's one that was very, I'm very old. I'm, I'm, uh, 77 years old, so do the math. I grew up in the 19, 1950s. And in the United States and in Northern Europe generally in the 1950s, we were told don't be queer, don't be homosexual. Say, I'm not, I, I was never, and I'm not now, but I'm trans, trans, transgendered. I was once a guy. So maybe you can tell, as you can tell from my voice. Um, and I was told, "Oh no, that's terrible! Well, don't do that! Don't do that!" And that I wish that I wish that hadn't happened—not to me so much. I I didn't suffer much from it, but it was a reign of terror for about a hundred years. And very strangely, not in Latin America, on the whole, not in the in in the Mediterranean countries, but especially in Germany, Holland, the United States, Britain. Australia. Yeah. So don't. If you're queer, you're here. They should get used to it. Don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, good note to let's uh, let's move to some questions from uh, we're, we're going to go first from our from our students and instructors. So Fergus asks, um, what about East Asia? Wasn't that development a, revo- a result of government interference in the economy, even if they just encouraged exports?
1: No. I mean, the, the sort of classic example is, is, is uh, South Korea. And export-led growth is a long, long um, tradition in economics, but I've written tons <laughs> against it, both historically in the 19th century and in contemporary terms. Now, the way you get rich is not kind of Keynesian. It's not aggregate demand from exports that have multiplier effects and put people to work. That's not how it works. What happens is that you think of new ways of doing things. And that's what South Korea, in fact, did. That's how they got rich. Here's an interesting one. The, The South Korean tiger moms, who are notorious, forced their kids to learn English. So, so, that's right, exactly. So, young people in South Korea now know English better than the Japanese do, actually much better than the Japanese. Uh, and that's, that's the idea, learn something, do something, open you know, Samsung. That's how they got rich, not through aggregate demand, puffing up the economy, which is the basic theory of export-led growth. I can't hear you. There we go. Julia
0: asks, uh, do you think the widespread focus of educating towards the standardized tests such as SAT and ACT is harming progress because it inhibits diversity of thought?
1: Yeah, probably. Probably, although, you know, I, how else is a kid, a, a, a really smart kid from some terrible high school going to get out of it, out of, the, out of being shunted off to the side, uh, except by these standardized tests? Um,
0: so I, I, don't have, I don't have
1: any sophisticated opinion about this. I'm not knowledgeable about them, huh. Turns yeah, out i very, personally, I'm very good at taking such tests because <laughs> as a child and to some degree now, I, I, I stuttered very badly. And mm. so I was, this is 1950s now we're talking about. So I was constantly going to therapists and they would always give me an IQ test. So I learned how to take them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. A question from, uh, Long. When you, uh, what do you think about Sweden um, as an economy and a society? They encompass respect for innovation and entrepreneurship and also mm-hmm. a strong social safety net. That's is true. that a sweet spot for the economy uh, or is it possible only in a highly homogenous society?
1: I think it's a sweet spot, but as, as the question suggests, um, it's very hard to do in a country like the United States, which is you know big and uh, kind of layered and as we've seen in this ridiculous business about not wearing a face mask as a political statement, I mean, this is idiotic. Uh, In East Asia, they've always worn face masks. If you have a cold, people feel a responsibility to wear a face mask. Why the hell not? So it's very hard to get that going. But understand, as the questioner also said, seems to be very well informed, Sweden is a capitalist country. Now, I would prefer to use the word innovistic. It's, it's an example not of capitalism, but of innovism. The word capitalist is ex- capitalism is extremely misleading, but it's, it's, it, it doesn't admire inherited wealth greatly. It does admire entrepreneurship. The ball bearing is a Swedish invention. The The, the 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 screw propeller on ships is a Swedish invention. I think the bandsaw, but I'm not sure about this, is a Swedish invention, etc, etc, etc. And um, yes, but you know, people forget that the United States really does have a pretty good uh, um, safety net. The Swedish one is more generous. Um, but it's, we, it's not as if we, there, there's a, there's a conviction among Swedes and, and, and Dutch people and so on, that the United States has no safety net. And if you are unemployed, you're just completely bereft and you starve to death. That isn't, as you know, that's not the case. So the contrast that people are always drawing between Sweden and the United States is not really as great as people say in me, Minnesota, it's like
0: being in Sweden. All right. We're going to keep taking questions for about 10 more minutes. Um, Then we will uh, say goodbye to our speaker, but um, Matt Bateman is going to stay on the line if anybody has questions about uh, the high school course itself um, or just wants to sort of continue the conversation. Um, But if you have any questions about progress studies for young scholars in particular, Matt Bateman will take those at uh, at the end of the hour. Um, all right, moving on, another question from Long. Um, what do you think about the New Deal, net good or net bad for American economy?
1: Net bad for income, the Great Depression in the United States was much longer than it was in most other countries. In fact, to tell the truth, in all other countries, Canada, for example, or France, even France, but France was probably the worst. Um, England Germany and so forth uh the, the, there were lots of poly, what FDR did actually had a debate with my mother about this she was born in 1922 and is a big FDR fan and i said she said to me FDR prevented the united states from slipping into fascism and i said yeah by trying it out and yeah, a lot of the, uh, of the programs of, of the New Deal were not as sweet as we remember them. Uh,
0: Sam asks, how important is immigration to innovation? What do you think oh, about the problem of brain drain?
1: I don't think there's a problem of brain drain brain for the United States, it's the other way around. It's Mexico and India and so forth that suffer a brain drain because the United States is, is a better place for them to be. But to, but to look at it from our point of view, immigration is essential. And it's just maddening that there are so many people now in charge in the White House. Uh, this fellow, Miller, for example, is shocking. I mean, Donald Trump's grandfather was from Germany. His mother was from Scotland. And yet he's against immigration. What, 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 how, what's going on here? Use a little common sense.
0: Immigration
1: is good for the country, not in aggregate demand terms, not in, not in this Keynesian way, but because just as the, as the questioner is suggesting, these people are often the innovators. I mean, they are, for example, in academic life. Notice on TV, when you get a doctor or a scientist, how often they have a foreign accent usually a European accent, or they're clearly of South Asian descent. Hmm, now that's interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and in the technical world, um, my, my previous career, by the way, was in uh, software and technology, and it's very yeah. clear how many, uh, there's a lot of Indian CEOs and founders, and,
1: uh, and, and all sorts
0: of, know. I think more than half are, are immigrants of some exactly. type.
1: Exactly, if you want a dynamic society, let, as, as, as I said, let people free.
0: Yeah. Um, a question, uh, audience question from, uh, from Edward. He says, I see a need to think about strategies to change over time, uh, values and, and so forth in the culture uh, as think tanks have tried to change public policies. Do you see that need? And do you have any suggestions on strategy?
1: Well, that's a very deep question and troublesome question. I mean, if I was so smart, why aren't I rich? That is, why haven't I been able, or anyone else who has opinions like I do, able to change people's mind? My friend, Don Boudreau, who runs um, uh, um, uh, Cafe Hayek, is a brilliant economist at George Mason University. And Don, endlessly and with incredible patience, tries to get protectionists to understand that international trade pr- protectionism is idiotic. But I don't know, he doesn't have any effect on them. They keep coming back. They're like the uh, waves of Chinese soldiers in the Korean War, they just keep coming. Um, so, I, I look, we haven't got any government tricks we can do. I don't want to go that way and I wouldn't want to even if I could even if I was the Tsarina of the the economy. But we can keep saying to people, do you wanna be an adult? Do you wanna be a non-slave? Why don't you want everyone to be a non-slave and an adult?
0: Question from uh, Michael. What do you make of Leopold Kors theory of size in today's context? And maybe, uh, I don't know what Leopold Kors theory of size is, so maybe you could explain either. that.
1: I don't either, but I don't know what oh. you mean by size. Maybe you mean size of the economy? I'm not quite sure. All there, right. There's an awful lot of foolishness about scale. Hmm? People get all, you know, it was one of the big mistakes in the Soviet Union to think that there are always economies of scale so if you have a tractor factory, it's got to be three miles long <laughs> and make all the, fact, all the tractors in the USSR in this one factory. And that's a very naive view. Um, smallness sometimes is beautiful. As we were saying about science, it's not obvious that centralized big science is the, is the way to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Question from uh, one of our students, Binyamin. Uh, You mentioned that mechanical development came first and then scientific conclusions from that. But now it seems that most mechanical development is made on a basis of scientific support. Is this still how it should be? Or should we be thinking more in mechanical terms and looking at mechanical success?
1: Actual innovation in machinery and in even biology, but especially machinery, it Has often nothing to do with science. It has to do with technology. It has to do with uh, craft, tr- craft traditions in say mechanical engineering. When you make an assembly line, um, I mean make it make it work. They have all the machines putting things in bottles and so on. That's got bugger all to do with science. Um, I I. I, I, I agree with Joel Mulcair to the extent that more and more in the modern world, science is the origin of technology. But it's still, I mean, I would, I've tried to get Joel to join me in an empirical inquiry into this where we look at what we use, the goods and services we use in the modern world and try to try to calculate what percentage of their origin comes from just some mechanic fiddling around, thinking, let's see if I put it this way, it'll work that way. Um, or designers, as I keep saying, um, as against high scientists doing m- 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 microbiology. Thank God right now. Um, but he won't do it. Um, and you, I'd ask you to ask him about it next All week.
0: All right. Well, we've got him next week. Uh, <laughs> so we can ask him about that. One last and maybe, and hopefully a, a, a brief question, uh, and then we'll say goodbye from Patrick. What are the best things to read about the Dutch enlightenment?
1: Well, uh, my own books. <laughs> Every author says that. Which,
0: which, which one or two, uh, the, the Bourgeois? Uh, yeah.
1: The one that, uh, that, that talks the most about Holland is the third volume called um, Bourgeois uh, Quality, and there's a section about the Dutch. But no, the, there's, um, there's a lot to learn about the, the, the Dutch. Language. That's a good phrase. It's not normally used, the Dutch Enlightenment of the 17th century. It's quite extraordinary. Um, the, the old book, uh, The Embarrassment of uh, 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 Riches, is fun, but the trouble is, he's a, uh, he's an art historian, not an economic historian. There's a quite good book called *The First Modern Economy* by Jan de Vries, spelled the, in the Dutch way, and someone else, and that's quite good. Although by now it's kind of old. I ik uh, ik Holland which means I love Holland. I've lived there for three years and failed to learn Dutch, but tried.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we are at the uh, bottom of the hour. So I think we're going to have to end it here. Uh, unfortunately, this has been uh, really wonderful. Thank you, Thank Professor you. McCluskey for coming on and, and sharing your, uh, your thoughts and wisdom with us. I
1: enjoyed uh, it. Hasta la
0: vista. All and uh, right. Matt, would you like to come up and, uh, and take the stage?
1: Okay, there's be good if you can't be good be careful. <laughs>